arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Episode 6 saddles Andy with a direct confrontation with the monkeys. I wanted to introduce Episode 6 on a more positive note before the action begins. Long after my grandfather passed away, I learned that he had ventured forth to the New York World's Fair. How I would love to have had an extended conversation about his experience and what he thought about the future. You'll hear me describe the gentleman in the straw hat carrying a green bag days before knapsacks. That's him. My fear of the imagination would bring me to the first big drawing card, a robot called Electro. You see, all I need to do is to speak into this phone, and Electro does exactly what I tell him to do, sometimes. But I don't see why I'm telling Electro's story when he's perfectly able to tell his own. So let's listen and see what Electro has to say to us today. All right, Electro, will you tell your story, please? Who? Me? Yes, you. Okay, toots. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be very glad to tell my story. I am a smart fellow, as I have a very fine brain of 48 electrical relays. Remember, the places I visit belong to my imagination. The fair had lots of places to go, from government pavilions to food zones, science, and fabulous corporate expositions. I'd be at the RCA exhibit trying to sneak a look at this new thing called television. World War II nixed Uncle Milty until later. Then I would wait in line for the General Motors-sponsored Futurama to see if what was predicted really did come true. Oddly, I'd quietly try and make sense of the Trilon and Perisphere's definite geometric shapes. I would like to watch them load the time capsule, which does make it into the future in my book. It should be obvious in Episode 7 that I would have loved to have driven one of those new Fords around the ramps. I would stop for a treat in each of the world pavilion food zones, wolf down some ice cream at the seal test exhibit. Lastly, I'd be ready for the amusement area and the water show. Whether I would get on that parachute ride is a matter of conjecture. Whoa. By the way, to get to the fair, Andy, Lucy, and her family take the IRT subway above ground. But the monkeys are very clever and ready to stop them from saving Geiger. This is where we pick up the action as I Have Seen the Future confronts the power force of the future at the 1939 World's Fair, extolling the value of future progress. I have seen the future. Chapter 23. Aunt Charlotte bunched several parcels in her arms, wrapped in white paper with blue and orange trim, and set them down in front of a shiny veneer floor model radio and a spindly brass lamp. These were all postmarked from New York City and accompanied by letters personally signed by Grover Whalen, said Aunt Charlotte. Well, whoopee, yelled John. Broadcaster announced that all the news of the day was about to begin. Hush, John. Old Thomas is coming on. Okay, hush, hush. 
The announcer's voice resonated in the speaker. It was as if he were privy to every tidbit and secret unearthed during the day. Good evening, everybody. Andy repeatedly pulled back the taffeta curtains at the bay window. In the descending darkness, he checked against the ancient Kowalski house. Someone peeked through the curtains in the second floor window. As the broadcast continued, Mrs. Appel removed the blue china plates with the panoramic view of the pointed trilon and the perisphere ball etched in white. In the background, beyond a long mall and lake, were a parachute ride's puffy chutes. Lucy was unusually quiet and watched Andy as he looked outside again. Lucy, said her mother, I thought you were looking forward to these gifts. Oh, you can open them, Mom. Mrs. Appel unwrapped the next box. An all-American family, mother and father and boy and girl, nicely dressed, were at the New York World's Fair. Bud and Babs, the Middletons go to the fair. Well, here's another board game, you two. The white, orange, and blue are the fair colors, said Aunt Charlotte, as she inhaled and set her smoldering cigarette on the magenta metal ashtray. Then she blew out a cloud smoke that drifted in Andy's direction and then handed the board game to Lucy. Lucy sidestepped across the room to Andy. Well, bud, she asked Andy at the window, what do you see out there? I'm not sure, Babs. Thomas signed off the newscast. Some brisk music, similar to the movie theater newsreels, played loudly on the radio as Aunt Charlotte sashayed across the room and deposited an open box in Lucy's hands. Rising Tide by William Grant Stills. I think it's the theme song of the fair. Mrs. Appel displayed the model of a pointed trilon with a thermometer's glass-red mercury tube extending up the obelisk. Well, this is unique. Here, said Aunt Charlotte. She handed Mrs. Appel a square box wrapped in silver paper. Mrs. Appel peeled back the silver foil, revealing a yellow, black, and red box. A camera! My goodness! Kodak 620 Bullseye! To remember your time at the fair, it takes roll film 620. Well, that's going overboard, said John. Thank you. Well, you'll have to show me how to operate it, said Mrs. Appel, adjusting her wire glasses as she studied the black Bakelite box. Sure, sure. Charlotte, you shouldn't have spent your money on me. Aunt Charlotte slipped a red-striped bulky box to John. John's astonished expression was stuck on his face as he shook the box. It's light. He tore apart the crisp red striped paper. Macy's department store was printed in bold white letters on the outside of the box. John removed a felt brown hat with a dark band. A hat! Fedora, said Aunt Charlotte. Why, I haven't worn a hat since our wedding, said Mrs. Appel, twisting her lips. Remember, John. You're in the city now, not in Iowa, plowing fields. John positioned the fedora on his head. How do I look? Handsome, said Lucy, realigning the hat to one side. John seemed to like his new status as he kept the fedora on his head and passed the official guide to the fair, a small blue book, to Andy. The trilon and perisphere were highlighted in white against the deep blue background. Quite an undertaking. Place used to be an ash dump. That's right, Lucy mentioned that in her speech. In the next house over, a man stood in the glow of a second-floor window, but when Andy turned, he quickly retreated. Then the blinds came down. I'm going to step outside for a while, if you all will excuse me. John peered over his reading glasses. 
Says here we have an unlimited pass to the fair. But your actual ceremony is on Tuesday when you read your essay, Lucy. Practice up. Oh, she'll be fine, John, affirmed Mrs. Appel. Andy opened the screen door with his shoulder and pivoted on the porch's gray-painted boards. The cooler city air was inundated with a variety of unfamiliar odors. He traipsed down the wood steps and onto the cement walk. From the darkened yard, the upper light blazed intensely behind the blinds in the Kowalski house's second floor. Why had the radio buzzed? He stared at the house through the tree branches, but his inclination was to cross the yard and confront those brothers directly. The talk of static on the Kowalski radio bothered Andy enough to remain awake. His rollaway bed was positioned downstairs next to the side window. Since dusk, the brightening orange light around the upper windows bothered him. Perhaps he was so unnerved by the monkeys and Duane Pilts that he ascribed unrealistic qualities to the two brothers. Or maybe his instincts were right. He finally had dozed off, but a noise like a metal trash can lid scuffing something solid made him sit up in bed. The wind gusted occasionally and rustled the tree leaves and grass blades in the front yard. The quiescent moonlit street was in stark contrast to the ubiquitous orange glow around the second floor blinds. A shadowy figure rumbled up Kowalski House's front steps. Andy hoisted up his trousers and quickly threw on his shirt. He nimbly opened the bedroom door while slipping into his shoes. He tiptoed across the rug and opened the inner wood and glass door. Then he pushed the screen door. After crossing the porch, his eyes fixed on the upper window and he jogged onto the tree-lined street. He checked the parked cars under the silhouetted tree branches. His heartbeat pattered at the temples as he left the sidewalk toward the Kowalski house. A dim light inside the open doorway created fuzzy shadows inside the wallpapered hall. On the uncut grass, he stared at the closed, brightly boarded blinds. He touched his shoe to the front step, but as he neared the doorway, the same shotted electrical odor as the rail yard was evident. The only light in the house leaked from an indeterminate source at the top of the stairs. He was not sure why he started climbing the stairs. The first tread creaked as the light intensified near the second floor. When he reached the landing, a middle-aged man with a shaved head stormed across the room. He lumbered forward with his arms outstretched from his sleeveless undershirt. His high cheekbones framed his maniac blue eyes, and he emitted a guttural roar as he attacked. With his legs bent, Andy jabbed with his right leg, knocking the man onto the floor. To his surprise, the guy got up and was yelling. His eyes had orange pinpoints. You're the one. Who are you? You're Reese. How do you know who I am? You'll never make it in a fair. Geiger will not survive. I'll kill you both. With clenched fist, the man started forward again. Andy smacked him harder in the face and then thrust his foot squarely into his gut. As the guy buckled at the knees, the monkey spun out of his abdomen. Andy scrambled backward. The thick swarm encircled him and he swatted at them as he rolled across the floor to the sink. He clawed his way up the counter, flipped on the faucet, and stuck a metal pan under the cold, splattering water. In a single motion, he swung the pan back and sent a wave of water across the weightless, tiny orange spheres. Sparks crackled and the ozone inundated the air as the monkeys, one by one, popped out of existence. Kowalski's body, like Dwayne Pilts in the rail yard, collapsed to a pile of white dust granules on the oak floorboards. Andy slid down against the sink and onto the floor. Damn! 
Another man in a white jersey had also shaved down to brown nubs, brandished a small caliber handgun as he burst from the hall. His contoured cheekbones closely matched the first man, and his azure eyes housed an identical orange pinpoint. You threaten the world! You are the one sent for Geiger! Damn monkeys. We are about to find endlessly in the electrical conduits. You'll die now! Andy darted left. He dove through the doorway. The man fired the handgun several times. His air whooshed by his head, and he tumbled down the staircase. He slipped across the walk outside and in a crab run awaited more gunfire as he dived behind a parked car. The remaining Kowalski brother bolted out of the front door and fanned the gun across the yard. He then trotted into the driveway shadows. Less than a minute later, along the far side of the house, a car engine started. Headlights burst across the dirt drive and small garage. Andy remained crouched behind the parked car. The sand crunched under the tires and the red taillights glowed as Kowalski fishtailed down the moonlit street. Calling the police would not help. The first brother was a mass of granules upstairs and the monkeys controlled the remaining brother. More frightening was the idea of the monkeys proliferating inside the electrical grid. They had power not only to overwhelm him and Geiger, but everyone alive in 1939. <laughs> I have seen the future. Chapter 24. Andy's eyes ached as the rickety subway neared the fair. The ever-present ascending trilon and white perisphere ball formed a geometric centerpiece above the morass of linear buildings, captivating the attention of every window-gazing passenger on the train. On the far right, the parachute ride tower, capped with a disc, appeared higher than the trilon, and the chutes floated rapidly to earth. Spreading before the train was a bright blue stretch of water. The fair had an ethereal look, and the white geometric collage left him with a tangential grasp to the future. Lucy was clad in a new green cotton dress with white circles flared at the shoulders, with three buttons to a matching belt at the waist and pleated to the knee. The emerald green fabric contrasted with her deep brown eyes. Her flamboyant reaction to the New York City skyline during the ride from New Jersey negated the creeping pressure upon Andy. About to realize her dream, she maintained her exuberance and shook the back of his hands. Andy, this is it. We're here because of you, Lucy, he said with a perfunctory smile. Mrs. Appel held the folded official guidebook in one hand and the Hawkeye camera dangled around her neck. It says here... We are arriving at the IRT slash BMT subway gate, building the world of tomorrow with the tools of today. Hmm, I want a picture of that when we get outside. Well, Mr. Davenport and his people are supposed to meet us here at 9.15 at the Perisphere, said Lucy. Well, I wish Aunt Charlotte were here, said her mother, fumbling with the little black box with the tiny lens to operate this camera. Andy's thoughts skipped between the two eras. The alabaster perisphere and trilon showboated the churning sense of optimism, not because they were fair structures, but from the inspiration of those promoting and attending the exposition. The future would inevitably become the hostage of the advancement. I clocked 25 minutes since we left Times Square, said John, balancing the fedora in his lap. They have a World's Fair stop at Penn Station, too. 1,216 acres. 
added Mrs. Appel, reading from the guidebook. We need the official daily program. That cost a nickel. Lucy's face imparted a deep sense of serenity as Andy grinded his teeth. She leaned over and spoke in a more concerned lower voice. What's the matter, Andy? Oh, I'm just tired. She shook her head and smiled and then tapped his knee. We'll look for Professor Geiger today. He has a place at the USSR Pavilion. Right. I wonder why he used the word cataclysmic about his work. Probably a new theory of some kind. And he said he was looking at the sky. Andy had found nothing in the newspapers about any more Transformers exploding. The monkeys were very clever and probably had learned to avoid that problem. A long reflecting pool extended perpendicular to the Trilon and Perisphere toward a distant oval lake with fountains shooting upward. When the train slowed to a stop and a voice called out, Bowling Green, Bowling Green, Bowling Green, Bowling Green. The door slid open and Andy squeezed between the enthusiastic patrons vying for entry into the fair. He felt awkward donning a tie and sport coat back in New Jersey. But most people in 1939 were dressed more formally than in his time. The men's tailored suits and the women's dresses and skirts signified the regimen and social appropriateness of the era. Even the children were downsized versions of the grown-ups. John, now sporting the fedora, flashed Lucy's pass to the attendant in blue, white, and orange garb, and they were soon waved forward. This would have cost 75 cents. I am glad I have a smart daughter. From the shadows of the subway overhang, Andy emerged on the top of a steep, descending concrete ramp. The bordering, tawny cement walls actually curved into one of the fair buildings. He looked over his shoulder. Boarded by two fluted pylons, bold white letters were placed across the subway's overhanging facade. IRT Subways, BMT. Andy maneuvered down the ramp behind Lucy and her parents and onto a shorter ramp lined with the same light brown cement and boarded with an upper red metal rail. The ramp's steep angle gave the illusion of being swept into the fair. Ahead, the animated faces of men and women buzzing around the plaza's concrete rim fountain fueled the sense of boundless optimism. Bronze statues guarded the fountain's green panel, chrome-surrounded tiers, and in the center, a groove cylinder rocketed the water skyward. The fountain of the atom, it says, said Mrs. Appel, again reading from the fair book. Everyone line up out there. Oh, we have our own tour guide, my wife, said John. We don't want to be late for Mr. Davenport, Mavis. Oh, John, I'm sure we'll be on time, she replied, fumbling with the camera box. A brush of gentle mist swept over Andy's cheek. The fountain was tiered upward like a wedding cake with odd little shaped creatures sitting like statue freaks at each level. He peered around the monstrosity to Rainbow Avenue. The street actually began with a long row of building-sized gold metal art panels and extended to the heart of the fair. Rainbow Ave met the Avenue of the Patriots and corporate exhibition buildings under a sunny blue sky all the way to the ubiquitous Trilon and Perisphere. Back at the subway entrance, a group of school children merged with the adults and ran down the ramps. A tall man in a straw hat, but dressed in black with a parson's collar, held a green satchel as he panned the buildings. Just what will we find here? asked Lucy. The parson squinted through his rimmed glasses. You will find whatever you're looking for, young lady. He smiled and moved toward the avenue bordered with flags. 
Well, I guess he's right, said Lucy, shrugging her shoulders. Men in blue, orange, and white uniforms hovered near a color-coordinated tractor at the end of the far ramp. The train engine hummed near a trifold white building with orange trim marked John's Manville in blue letters above the doors. Andy took in the warm air, occasionally swept with dissipating exhaust and drifting bacon and eggs in air currents as he faced the workers. As if they were gunmen preparing for a shootout in the Old West, the three men then circled in slow motion around the trees bordering the building. Andy took one step forward. He studied each of them, all varying in height as they surrounded him. Like Dwayne Pilts and the Kowalski brothers, all three men had sheared heads down to the stubs. The little one had a wide dog nose and an intensity in his blue eyes that rattled him. He sidestepped about five meters from the taller man, head also shaved, who gawked at Andy with his mouth half open. The last worker was a teenager with blonde eyebrows and a shaved head. They never looked at each other and remained focused, as if they were ready to destroy Andy and Lucy's family. Andy swaggered forward, tightened his fist, and prepared to fight. To his right, an older man in a blue suit barreled through the John's Manville glass doors and leaped over the gravel surrounding one of the trees. He shouted loudly at the threatening workers. I told you guys half an hour ago to report to the Ford building. Why are you still up here? All three men marched silently in unison and climbed under the striped canopies covering the mobile train. The front grille and headlights of the orange and blue tractor resembled John's truck, but the engine did not sound like the truck. Come on, Andy, get in the photo, shouted Lucy from the building corner. The blonde-browed kid took control of the tractor as the other two men slid in the forward car. The train spun in a circle as the engine whined, and the entire set of cars disappeared below the flags on the Avenue of the Patriots. He, ne he had neglected to check to see if their eyes possessed the same orange pinholes like Dwayne Pilt's. Andy raced after the train. Hey, sir, what's the problem? Asked the man in the blue suit. He had slick back hair and a penciled mustache, but his eyes were clear. Andy held his shoulders. Those men, who are they? Unhand me. What's the matter with you? They work here. I will have to ask you not to bother employees of the fair. Where do they work here in the fair? They've been out at the Plaza of the Life for the last two days. We've had some circuit problems, he said, and then he paused and shook his head. The train was between the huge buildings far down the avenue. Why am I telling you this? Sir, you're crossing the line of privacy. I'll have to ask you to cease this activity. Lucy was near the subway canopy and clock across the square. Your family, they want you over there for a photograph. I consider this matter closed. He strutted back to the John's Manville building. Andy was convinced those men on the mobile train had the same stupefied expression as Dwayne Pilt's. He stared at the white-faced analog clock atop the center of the long, linear station canopy. The clock says 9.06, said Lucy, already beaming for the pending photograph. She gazed at an embossed logo of a man inside a white protective suit above the John's Manville doors. Look at that. Asbestos. Magic material. That suit is impenetrable to fire. Lucy, John called from the square. Mr. Davenport will be waiting. She grabbed Andy's arm and dragged him back with the others. Andy continued to search for the train down the flag-draped avenue. He and Lucy reached the others in front of a biscuit-colored building that curved along the square behind several bushy-leaved trees. 
Anything wrong? asked John as he pointed at the colorful flags down the industrial avenue of Patriots. I saw you looking at those men who were on the tractor. Well, I guess I'm suspicious of everyone. That's okay, boy. That's the way to be. Right, Andy? Right, John. Everyone smile, said Mrs. Appel. She balanced her glasses and peered into the rectangular side viewfinder. Oh, Charlotte, where are you when I need you? Andy reluctantly grinned. Oh, Mavis, just snap the picture, said John, holding the hat brim as he maintained his fixed smile. Mrs. Appel squinted into the lens and pushed the shutter. Andy heard the click. There! I did it! I feel like my mouth is stuck smiled, snapped John. Wait, said Lucy as she took Andy's hand and led him to the lip of a huge white marble statue of a powerful muscular man in pants and no shirt. A little dog looked up at the man. Lucy marched like the dog below Andy. Now, we're not taking a picture like that, said John. Lucy, stand up. Oh, there's no picture at all. Andy helped her up and whispered, Well, I wasn't going to take off my shirt. Oh, shucks. Oh, no, I just snapped the photo, said Mrs. Appel. As they say in Hollywood, said John, taking his wife under the arm, that's a take. Lucy took Andy's elbow and walked behind her parents along a series of oddly shaped wastebaskets that tapered upward like open wire funnels. Lucy's face reflected the same unabashed astonishment as everyone passing by on the yellow roadway. Mrs. Appel lifted the guidebook with a white silhouette of the Perisphere and Trilon on the navy cover. The Avenue of the Patriots will bring us right to the Trilon and Perisphere. Will you look at those flags, said John, shielding his eyes with his hands. I see the Trilon and the Perisphere. And who said you couldn't read a map, Mavis? You? John rolled his eyes and patted Andy on the back as they started down the avenue. Mrs. Appel rattled off the names of the first exhibits. The yellow paint lightened as they trekked ever so slowly under the flagpoles and the blue sky toward the looming perisphere. American Radiator, said John as they passed a number of benches across from the simple white slab building. I see my husband will give us the narration, said Mrs. Appel, still on his elbow. They walked sprightly as if they had both were 20 years younger. It looks like a totem pole joined by pipes in front of it. Across the roadway, five thin tan blocks stamped up top with the word gas in red letters rose into the sky. Gas Industries, said John, reading the company name. Where is the gas? Porky knows that answer, said Lucy. Her mother, enamored by the fear, let the comment slip by. John quickly pointed ahead. Now here we go. Works Progress Administration, courtesy of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. WPA kept this country employed. Above the agency name was a massive, colorful mural of workers spread across the building. Look at that, will you? America at work. Andy gazed down the boulevard. We need to get to the Ford building. <clears throat> We've got time, Kimo Subby. I want to see those WPA puppeteers, said Mrs. Appel. Sounds real exciting, Lucy whispered in Andy's ear. Then she spoke in a louder voice. I want to see Democracy City and the Futurama. There's the RCA building, television, and they have a television camera right in there. It transmits pictures, not just sound. I read that they broadcast all the way to Fifth Avenue in New York City. Do you know that over 200 television sets saw the president open the fair? The word television was highlighted in orange letters above the overhang, 
but out front several men stood in front of a bulky box of a camera. Well, there's your television. The great advancement moves onward. That is television, exclaimed Lucy, taking him by the hand. In the small crowd, her mouth hung open as the men on the stage faced the camera about three meters away. I want to be televised. Andy smiled. Well, we can always come back. John was further down the avenue and waving them forward. You're right. I'm just so excited about the future, Andy, she said. Lucy in her green and white dress and Andy in his blue sport coat and white slacks were reflected in the massive windows in front of the building. He gazed up at the four thin orange columns and at the RCA logo circle emblazoned in the alabaster facade. An antenna in the rear rose at least 50 meters above the roof. They have television back there at RCA, said Lucy. You'll need a set to view it, said her father. John moved ahead with Andy and elbowed him near the white geometric building on his left. Then he pointed at the building. There's the reason we can talk by telephone from coast to coast. Maybe someday we'll get a phone to do it, said Lucy. Lucy, warned John, and Mavis stared at him. What, Mavis? Maybe your daughter is right. Well, you look at that trial on. My God, said John, changing the conversation. But the white statue in front of the AT&T building confused him. What's that guy doing riding a leopard? I think it's the Pony Express, said Lucy as she ran over to a bust of a man on the side of the stone building. Andy followed her to the building. The parson stood near the writing on the wall. Alexander Graham Bell, from whose invention of the telephone has grown a communication system that carries the human voice quickly and clearly anywhere throughout the world. But where is that world going? asked Andy. Lucy thought about his words and then raised her finger. Do you know that a guy named Gray was right behind Bell by less than two hours and going into the patent office? Where is Elijah Gray? I ask you, Mr. Reese, where is Mr. Gray? The parson lifted his brow. Mr. Gray has gone away. Yes, he has, said Andy, but his smile fell away and his face tensed. Above the building entrance was a bell marked the Bell System and a three-story, white-silhouetted line worker climbing a pole with dozens of electrical wires passing through the insulators set against an orange background. The sculpture reminded him of the monkeys inside the electrical grid. They stepped away from the parson. What's wrong, Andy? Nothing important. She brought her arm around him and they skirted the building. In the distance, two women drove an odd little yellow car with no roof and red rims surrounding the chrome hubcap wheels. They raced on a roadway, cutting through finely manicured grass. Andy led her to a bench and they sat down. The great advancement. Is that what bothered you back here? He looked upward toward the moving clouds. No, that wasn't it. I'm looking at the clouds and I'm thinking of something Tennyson wrote, but give it a try, Kimosubi. He creased his brow but continued looking at the clouds high above the fair in the blue sky. There rolls the deep where grew the tree. O oh, earth, what changes hast thou seen? There where the long street roars hath been the stillness of the central sea. The hills are shadows, and they flow. They form to form, and nothing stands. They melt like mist, the solid lands. Like clouds, they shape themselves and go. Lucy spoke through moist eyes. I know a little, Tennyson. By all means, Miss Appel. You haven't called me that since you first came to the farm. He maintained eye contact as she recited her verse. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. 
push off in sitting well in order to smite the surrounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. I believe you will sail beyond that sunset, Miss Appel. He kissed her, and as he kissed her, he felt the warm breezes sweep over them. She was smiling when he opened his eyes. He kissed her again. Oh, your mother and father. Yes, giving him several shot pecks on the lips. They'll be worried. He easily surrendered to the irresistible force of her magnetic smile. Now, Professor Geiger, he should worry, but John and Mavis will be fine. Andy pointed toward her parents as he and Lucy veered toward the towering white trilon. Did you see that funny little car? asked Lucy as they approached. A Crosley. I wouldn't want to bang into anything with that piece of tin, added John. At the corner of a smaller road stood the distant, white-towering figure of a man hovering over a long promenade. Andy studied Mrs. Appel's guidebook map. Is that George Washington? The parson nearby turned for a quip. He studied his guidebook and did not look up as he spoke. If it is, he must be pretty old by now. Amen, said Andy as he smiled. The parson lifted his satchel off the ground and then continued onward to the statue. For a second, Andy wondered about the monkeys and the parson. Then he turned back to the trilon and perisphere. Even more than the sharpness of the obelisk against the sky, the sheer size of the stucco-coated geodesic dome behind was overwhelming. The surface appeared rougher as they inched closer and may have been the steel supports pushing against the facade. From a sweeping spiral ramp supported by thin pylons anchored into a lower pool, patrons captured photographs with oversized box cameras. The ramp itself was lined with a plexiglass rail leading from a dark opening in the dome to the Trilon base, now in the perisphere's shadow. They say that inside the perisphere is the future. I've never seen the future, said Lucy, looking up at Andy. Andy pursed his lips with a sigh. It's only the dream of the future. Well, that's unsettling. I have seen the future. Chapter 25. Wood slatted benches surrounded a ring of squared columns propping up the perisphere around a rippling blue pool. Magnificent fountains spurted prodigious water jets into the atmosphere, and bright dab flower beds traced the avenues. A man with short black hair and glasses, wearing a light blue suit coat and orange tie, raised his index finger. He held his notebook, motioned to his small entourage, and like a herd of horses, they all cantered toward a compass, divided into rounded white directional sectors within the asphalt. Then he flipped open his gold pocket watch. You must be Mr. and Mrs. Appel, he said in a precise, articulate voice. I am Mr. Davenport, coordinating with President Whalen for your visit. John Appel, and this is my wife, Mavis. Mrs. Appel? I'm pleased to meet you, Mr. Appel, said Davenport, turning to Lucy. And you must be Miss Appel. I am... She said, shaking his hand, Congratulations, Miss Appel, on behalf of myself and the committee. I have personally read your essay and find it quite insightful and very well written. Thank you. And this is Andy Reese. Davenport squinted behind the thick lenses. Andy stretched out his hand. Family friend, a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Davenport. A pleasure to meet you also, Mr. Reese. 
He raised his brow. Unfortunately, our magnificent fair is experiencing power failures this morning. Andy faced Davenport. What happened? Oh, just some transformer malfunctions in the vicinity of the Plaza of Light. The people at Westinghouse are fixing the problem. Andy panned the long reflecting pool and watched the colorful automobiles continuously traveling around the rampways connected to the Ford building. Davenport motioned left and nodded to a young woman in a light blue uniform and matching hat. Miss Haverhill, if you will. Like a waitress with the main course, Miss Haverhill swept forward with a teak tray filled with blue and white badges. Lucy read the bold inscription on the badge. I have seen the future. Yes, I believe you have in your essay, Miss Pell. These badges are compliments of the General Motors Futurama. Davenport removed the first badge, bent back the tab, and attached it to Lucy's dress above the neckline. There, I do believe that all of you are now officially at the New York World's Fair. Thank you, said Lucy, unable to shed her huge smile. I guess that grants us certain privileges. Well, said Davenport, pinning a button on Mrs. Appel's yellow dress, we have a splendid stay here planned for you and your family. Tomorrow in the Court of Peace, if all goes according to Hoyle, where FDR opened the fair, said Lucy. Yes, very good. And fear not, the crowd will not be so all-encompassing there. He attached a badge to John's suit coat pocket. But we do have a few people who may be in attendance. Mayor LaGuardia's office has promised a presence at the event, and of course President Whelan will be there if possible. We may broadcast your essay presentation via the RCA television camera. Television? asked Lucy, looking at Andy. We just saw the camera at the RCA building. This is the world of tomorrow, Miss Sapel. I'm really honored, replied Lucy. And Professor Geiger. Davenport stopped as he was about to pin a badge on Andy's shirt. Yes, dear Professor Geiger. Unless he is still in California, I'm sure he will be here, and you will have ample opportunity to chat with him. The professor was involved in that incident last week before he left for California. Incident? asked Andy. What incident? Poor chap ended up in the fountain at the Plaza of Light. Bad form, bad form. Apparently, he believes there was some kind of scientific oddity which he has yet to investigate. We have kept this incident, of course, out of the papers. What kind of oddity? asked Andy. Something to do with power surges, answered Davenport. When he is at the fair, Professor Geiger has, how would you say, set up shop inside the Soviet pavilion, and sometimes he's out by Big Joe. Big Joe? asked Andy as Davenport finally attached the button. Yes, the high statue out front dubbed Big Joe, a colloquial reference to the leader of the Soviet Union, Mr. Stalin. Now, Professor Geiger is allowed in there because of the political moves involving, if you've watched the newsreels, a proposed alliance between Germany and Russia. I'm not a political man. I'm a businessman. Now, with your pass, you may come and go as you will, but we do have some things planned for you. I would only ask you to clear any contacting the press with my office if you divert from the official itinerary. He placed a white card with blue and orange letters in Mrs. Appel's hand. 
Down the rose-painted boulevards, patrons constantly moved between puffy green trees and solid buildings. A thin, diagonally pointed structure, shaped like an icicle, partially obscured the lofty, smooth white statue of George Washington, crafted with a cloak draped over his broad shoulders. Washington stood above the distant statues in the blue reflecting pools with fountains spewing water jets into the sky. Davenport prattled about the futuristic theme of the fair. Andy's stomach jolted when he spotted the hook-nose agent from Lucy's graduation within the throng on the avenue only 30 meters away. The second older man, dressed in his brown pinstripe suit, joined his partner. Andy took two steps across the inlaid compass as the agents blended into the crowd. Still fascinated with old George, eh, Andy? asked Lucy. A James Earl Fraser is the sculptor, said Davenport. The figure of Washington stands 60 feet over Constitution Mall. Andy studied the mall's long white building at the corner and smiled at Davenport. Thank you. Could I take your picture, all of you? asked Mrs. Appel. Why, I would be delighted, said Davenport. He positioned himself between Lucy and her father. Andy stood to Lucy's right as Davenport set his smile. Everyone say cheddar cheese now. Andy, if you would turn back here and look at the camera. Andy turned back and smiled. Cheddar cheese, said Lucy, and Mrs. Appel clicked the shutter quickly this time. Well, I think you've got the hang of it, Mavis, said John. Davenport adjusted his glasses and stood before them. Now, I will meet you later at the Kodak building where I have a ceremony at 3.30 p.m. If you will kindly look to your left at the light blue Avenue of Pioneers as it slowly deepens to a darker blue at Lincoln Square and the Schaefer Center. Kodak is on the far side of the center, bordering World's Fair Boulevard. Andy, on his toes, checked the faces in the crowd down the avenue. Why do the roads get darker? asked John. A symbol of distance from the focal theme of your first stop here at the fair, the Perisphere, creating a feeling of the infinite, the trilon, the finite. There are four tons of steel in the Perisphere. Well, you people must have big sawbucks backing you, said John. Davenport smiled for the first time. Quite. Now, Miss Haverhill, if you will bring our guest to Democracy City. Andy, mesmerized by the fair patrons buzzing along the corner building, was concerned about the two men that had vanished. Miss Haverhill has your exact itinerary for today. You will be visiting the transportation zone, including the Westinghouse Electric Building, where our time capsule has been buried. The enclave, possessing the time capsule on Ganymede, swept Andy's thoughts away from the agents. The time capsule is actually here. Certainly, answered Davenport. Is this anywhere near Elsie the cow? asked Mrs. Appel, half gazing at her guidebook. Elsie and her calf, Beauregard, are at the Borden exhibit, next to where Mr. Reese was admiring General Washington. I assure you, Mrs. Appel, I am aware you have arrived from an Iowa farm, and we will take special care that you see Elsie the cow. Thank you, thank you, she said as John shook his head. Now, what are you looking at, John Appel? Well, you can't take him off the farm. Oh, you, what do you want to see? 
Well, the electrified farm, of course, if the power comes back on, answered John. Maybe those stunt cars, the death dodgers? Oh, dear, said Mrs. Appel. Lucy held Andy's hand behind his back. I need to get to the Ford building, said Andy in a voice barely audible. Why the Ford building? asked Lucy in an equally low voice. Would you believe I like cars? No. Miss Haverhill whispered something in Davenport's ear. Davenport nodded and faced the group. I have just been informed that the Transformers have been repaired by the engineers. No power is not good for the fair, said John. Quite. Davenport cleared his throat. Enjoy yourselves at the fair, and on behalf of President Wayland, I say that we are very pleased to have you all here. Thank you, Mr. Davenport. My pleasure. Good day. Davenport marched away like a field commander, leading his troops into the Perisphere's shadow. At that moment, the two agents appeared at the corner building and were studying the Perisphere. Well, that cinches it. Andy, what's the matter? asked Lucy. Look, look, he said, shaking his head as if he could get rid of them. The taller man with gray hair lifted field glasses to his eyes. Lucy saw the men. Oh, dear God, it's them! She held Andy's shoulder. We need to call back Mr. Davenport. And what do we tell them? We need to get to Geiger first is what we need to do. I have seen the future. Chapter 26. Miss Haverhill's voice was as clear as a radio announcer. I think you will find the first exhibit unlike anything you have ever seen in your life. Democracy, designed by Henry Dreyfus, will bring you ahead 100 years. Let's see what they have in mind for a 2039. Andy tightened his jaw, rattled by the agent's presence at the fair. Maybe they're just going to say what they are. Agents worried about your connection to Geiger. Why? Why would they want me? Andy nodded. Guess because you contacted Geiger. We will proceed on the escalators, upward from the Trilon at ground level, to the chromium doors above. Inside, you will board the upper balcony and fly over the future. Please, Miss Haverhill said, motioning them toward the stainless steel escalator. The agents edged closer to the perisphere as Lucy hesitated near the escalator's meshing steel teeth. Are you all right, Lucy? She placed her upper teeth on her lip and then smiled as Miss Haverhill circumvented the line. The two agents, free of the crowd, entered the plaza only a short distance away. Andy held Lucy's arm and the rising escalator took them along steel walls behind Miss Haverhill, John, and Mrs. Appel. A tunnel at the top separated the escalators from two circular viewing balconies, slowly moving in opposite directions. As he walked Lucy onto the solid surface, Andy was certain that the two men, even though not in the group proceeding up the escalators, were lurking outside. Andy leaned forward next to Lucy inside a revolving balcony seat that seemingly floated above a skyscraper city and a sea-bound river with a sleek highway bridge back into the city. Harbor searchlights shot upward. At least let's tell my dad about those two men. We can do that. As the flute's sauntering melody grew louder, he prepared himself for a confrontation outside. 
indiscernible human forms were projected on the inner perisphere ceiling, and voices announced utopian visions of the future. Andy smiled as he counted ten columns of marching citizens. Businessmen and farmers moved in a precise cadence with teachers carrying books, engineers and blueprints, and miners with lamps. They sang a hymn of tomorrow as light burst down from the top onto the highway cloverleafs in the airfield. Geiger's presence on the timeline continued to haunt him. His heart thumped against his chest throughout the exhibit ride. He emerged with Lucy through one of the two openings in the perisphere. Once on the helicline, he leaned over the plexiglass railing, took in the fresh air, and scrutinized the area around the base beyond the lower pool. Lucy nervously whistled to the toe-tapping piano melody heard inside. Miss Haverhill turned with the appels. You are whistling with another winner of sorts. William Grant Stills won the competition with Rising Tide as the official song of the fair. You'll hear it all around here. It's just like my mother's music box, a catchy tune, though, said Lucy, gazing at Andy. It is, said Miss Haverhill as she walked ahead to the appels. Lucy pulled Andy aside. What did you think of democracy in the future? I need to go to the Ford building. She spoke in a lower voice. Andy, what else is going on here? Lucy, you don't understand. Understand what? Miss Haverhill escorted the appels down the slow, winding spiral ramp. Andy and Lucy trailed behind. He did not see the two agents along the base or the outskirts. Lucy looked back as they stopped on the hillocline. Progress must be guided, Andy. Because of progress, we will cease to be human. You mean like Electro? Just advancement, outstripping responsibility. Lucy gripped the railing. She faced a bridge arching over actual highways separating the perisphere from the slim Ford building in the background. The continuous movement of brightly colored cars rolling around the ramps adjacent to the main building created a sense of urgency. But it was the General Motors building with prodigious lines of people backed up the spiraling ramps that captured the fairgoers' attention. Andy again checked the avenues leading from the lower area but stopped as the two men from the Iowa graduation veered away from the statue of Washington and hurried back toward the perisphere. John Appel's voice shot up the hillocline. Lucy, come on, girl! Did you see them, Andy? She asked. I see them, he said, pointing toward the mall. We need to find Geiger now. Why are they after Geiger? He took her arm. I'm not sure. If I hadn't written that essay, no, it's not your fault. We have to get to Geiger about these guys. Mrs. Appel stepped away from Miss Haverhill and up the ramp. Now, come on, you two. We're guests here. Miss Haverhill says we're going to Westinghouse Electric. I need to see Professor Geiger. Well, not now, dear. We will see the time capsule area and Electro, said Miss Haverhill as they continued down the ramp. Oh, Electro, a fully functional robot, she answered and raised her brows. I see, said Andy. Ah, Miss Haverhill, would it be possible for me to meet with Professor Geiger today? asked Lucy. Lucy, said her mother. Well, I don't have that on the itinerary, but perhaps Mr. Davenport can make arrangements once we meet him at the Kodak building. 
Lucy's face flattened as she turned to Andy. He needed at least to reach Geiger by phone or, or just leave the group. They followed Miss Haverhill to the left, but he repeatedly eyed the hillocline winding down from the perisphere. The agents, the remaining Kowalski brother, and the monkeys were converging on the timeline. And who would the monkeys take over next? Mrs. Appel rested on one of the long slatted benches bordering a colorful array of red and white tulips. Andy gripped a cool, moisture-covered bottle of orange crush, propped his foot on the bench and scrutinized the immediate area while he waited for Miss Haverhill's return from inside the Westinghouse building. He had last seen the two agents before he entered the perisphere, and those monkey men at the fair entrance were probably in the Ford building. He gazed at the cars zooming around the Ford ramps. He had no help to thwart the agents or the monkeys. The authorities would not understand that post-biological life forms had traveled to 1939, nor would they find that the agents had done anything wrong. He set down the glass soda bottle. The Westinghouse Tower, a larger version of the inverted ring wastebaskets back at the subway entrance, was supported by a center-ribbed pole. Smaller connecting buildings joined Westinghouse's two larger identical exteriors. The company name was emblazoned in crisp, dark letters across the white facade and above the large grid windows. We do have a phone line available and we can check the Soviet pavilion, Mr. Reese, said Miss Haverhill, returning from the right. Great! Andy's new optimism was tempered with the responsibility not only of contacting Geiger, but preventing the professor's death. One of the uniformed fair guides met them at the door, and Miss Haverhill asked Andy to rendezvous back at the time capsule area after placing his call. As the enthusiastic men, women, and children streamed inside to the time capsule vault, Andy struggled to believe that in the future, the Enclave possessed the actual time capsule from this fair. The guide escorted Andy into an open lobby with an orange-capped stainless steel escalator and two huge silver spheres rotating and dodging above a black-railed mezzanine. He handed Andy a telephone supposedly connected to the Soviet pavilion at the far end of the fair. Yes, I'm trying to contact Professor Hermann Geiger. I'm sorry, this is the Soviet pavilion. You don't understand. Professor Geiger works out of your pavilion. phone bounced on the other end. Andy pulled the receiver away and covered the mouthpiece. He was distracted by the revolving spheres above the people riding the escalators. As he checked the mezzanine for the two agents, the phone shook on the other end, and an authoritative voice with a slight accent came on the phone. Hello, this is Antoli Kueska. To whom am I speaking? Andrew Reese. I'm here with Lucy Appel, the winner of the national... Reese. Yes. We are supposed to meet with Professor Herman Geiger. Professor Geiger was on a high trip to the Mount Wilson Observatory in Southern California. I do not know where he is presently. Can we leave him a message? asked Andy, watching the people on the escalator. What is your message? When he returns, he needs to call Lucy Appel in Credwell, New Jersey, Cedar 868. Three, eight. Thank you. We will relay your message when we die, sir. 
Andy stared at the phone. Well, that's unfortunate. Problem, sir? Asked the guide. Slight. Can you get me back to the time capsule area? Yes, sir. The parson held his straw hat by his side as he conferred with a guide near a glass-framed exhibit of materials duplicating the time capsule contents. Below, a tapered bronze or copper cover was inscribed in dark letters. The time capsule rests here in its immortal well, A.D. 1939 through A.D. 6939. The parson shuffled in front of the glass. Andy paused and pondered the long path the capsule would travel through time and eventually off the planet, the year 6939. That is longer than I care to be alive, said the parson. Me too, parson, me too. Andy! Lucy called from behind. Andy turned from the exhibit, but he stared back at the inscription as Lucy hurried over. Where is Geiger? Unknown. Lucy and Andy stand in front of the time capsule, said Mrs. Appel, gripping the Hawkeye. After you, he motioned her to the placard. Say, cheddar cheese, said Mrs. Appel. Cheddar, 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 said Andy, quickly forcing his smile. Miss Haverhill's perky voice pushed through the crowd noise. How would you like to see Electro? I could use his help, mumbled Andy. I'm sorry, Mr. Reese. No, nothing, nothing. Andy's eyes ached from constantly following the steady stream of people inside the exhibit. Miss Haverhill marched them into an open area along blue grid windows. A lustred bronze gold robot with no neck and an oversized head lumbered awkwardly across an elevated blue platform so, silver floor. With a great deal of pride and pleasure, I present to you Electro, the Westinghouse Moto Man. Electro? Come here. A fast-talking man in a suit spoke into a microphone with a long cord. Electro's chest was large and sloped, with a light vibrating within a center sunken circle and joint breaks at the elbows, wrists, and knees. The robot faced the audience below. Without the use of the cloud and miniaturization, the robot was bulky, but the people at the fair were awestruck. So let's listen and see what Electro has to say to us today. All right, Electro, will you tell your story, please? Who? Me? Yes, you. Okay, toots. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be very glad to tell my story. I am a smart fellow, as I have a very fine brain. An amber light flashed in Electro's chest as he spoke, and his head rotated from side to side. This was the beginning of the great advancement. Lucy smiled at him and then studied the robot. Interesting if that robot really did think on its own. Then she laughed and imitated the robot. Ladies and gentlemen, I would be glad to tell you my story. I am a smart farm girl, and I have a very fine brain. I get a wrong number. I can always blame the operator. Thank you. And Mrs. Appel elbowed John and he jumped. I my Lord, John, is that what we'll have in our house when we get old? Well, everything costs money, Mavis, said John, grinning. Don't count on it. Quiet. 
Andy peered through the gridded window. Near the benches in front of the tulip garden, the two agents munched on hot dogs. Now, Electro, a moment ago you were bragging about how being able to count on your fingers. Do you remember that? Well, we're going to find out about that. Do you remember how many children were born at the same time to a certain family up in Canada? Do you remember that? Count them on your right hand. One, two, three, four, five. Five? Well, that's absolutely correct. Lucy could sense something was wrong. Are you okay? He spoke in a low voice. The two agents, they're outside. Lucy's eyes opened wide. What are you going to do? Settle this thing once and for all. All right, Electro, I know you enjoy these, and I'm really going to try and give you a nice pleasure out of these. So here you are. You got that? Hold on to it. You may now smoke this cigarette. Go on. Oh, yes, Electro, you do need a light now, don't you? Here you are. And folks, he's only two years old, too. Just learning. He turned to Miss Haberhill. If you'll excuse me, I'm going to get some air. I'll be right outside the building. Of course, Mr. Reese, if there's anything we can do for you. Some more orange crush, perhaps? No, I'm all right, he said in a lower voice. Excuse me. Of course, Andy, said Mrs. Appel. Andy, be careful, warned Lucy as she followed him. Andy held her shoulders. Don't worry, just stay right here. She nodded and Andy headed for the doors. The men lingered near the bench outside the large frame Westinghouse windows. But Andy was clogged within the shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder movement of people inside the robot exhibit. He finally extricated himself and sprinted into the blinding sunlight where he dodged one of the World's Fair carts. Ahead, the two men casually conversed and nibbled on the hot dogs. Andy shouted with his hands cupped, You! The tall guy was about to bite into the hot dog but froze and then nudged the other man. Andy expected another altercation, but both men dropped the hot dogs and the drinks to the asphalt. Then they sprinted below the expansive spiral Westinghouse Tower centered between the two building wings. They darted right. Both men gained distance ahead of Andy and disappeared around a tin block building marked General Electric. When he reached the plaza, Andy did not see either man. To his right was a rounded steel spider frame building and another structure with a radio-like tower rising from the main building. He spotted the two men entering the building, surrounded by a long row of water fountains flaring upward. Andy rounded a blue pool with a spiked metal cluster in the center and ran as fast as he could toward the entrance marked City of Light. With the mist from the fountain spraying across his face, he entered the dark depiction of New York City. He weaved his way through the building, and once near the far side, he rushed into a ringed, glass-enclosed tunnel and emerged under massive waterfalls cascading overhead into a ground pool. Not sure if the agents were still behind the waterfalls, he scooted back into the plaza with the spiked artwork. With his hands on his hips, he scanned the area. He kicked the edge of the pool and returned to the Westinghouse building. At a long flower garden within the green grass, he again checked for the agents. One of the tour guides walked forward from the second Westinghouse building. The man held his hat and raised his hand. Mr. Reese! Andy trudged along the flowers, constantly looking for the agents, and met up with the guide on the grass. Is there a problem? The man cleaned his glasses as he spoke. 
Mr. Reese, Miss Haverhill has informed me that your party has left for the aviation and Ford buildings, and then the bus will take them back up to the Kodak building near the Court of State. He handed him a small orange and blue map and showed him where the bridge crossed over the highway to the transportation area. In the distance beyond the bridge, the Ford cars zoomed around the Ford building ramps. He thanked the guide, shook his hand, and started toward the bridge. I have seen the future, chapter 27. The smooth white street of wings bridge spanned the highway below. Andy pivoted onto the bridge's exhaust-laden air. He paused to catch his breath as the cars whooshed by in both directions below. With the Trilon and Perisphere in the background, the parson carried his satchel across the bridge. You are everywhere, young man, said the parson. I was just thinking the same thing, parson, said Andy as he prepared to leave. I was fortunate enough to be able to take the train from Providence. Andy nodded. Well, we came from New Jersey. The parson pointed at the Ford building. Across the bridge was a building shaped like a sail with red letters for Firestone and two buildings that resembled ships in the Ford building. To the far right, lines of people were packed on the ramps to the General Motors pavilion. When I was a boy, there were no cars. When I was a boy, there were no cars either, said Andy, as he stared at the parson's collar. And what does the clergyman say about all the progress here? The parson removed his straw hat and patted down his forehead with his handkerchief. It's uh, just a matter of faith. Too much faith is not a good thing, said Andy, thinking of Geiger. It depends, he said, placing the hat back on his head, on who you put your faith in. Good thought for a Sunday morning, said Andy as he prepared to leave. Andy saluted the parson, bringing a grin to the clergyman's stolid countenance. I have to meet my group. I'm sure we'll see you again, parson. Maybe. Andy waved as he jogged toward the silver-white building with a concave corner marked Ford in green letters. According to the guidebook, they advertised their automobiles by painting them in brilliant colors and driving patrons up and down the three levels of ramps to the left. He skirted more branches and hurried to the entrance below the silver frame rows of squared translucent windows. Someone inside opened the aluminum frame door and he entered the building. A shiny new car and a moving wall mural with a piston pumping up and down dominated the displays. Lucy stood with her parents and Miss Haverhill next to two early model cars. She turned fully and moved up to him as he approached. Where are they? Did you get them? I lost them in that waterfall building. He held her hands. We need to get Davenport involved in this. I have a bad feeling about those guys. She nodded as they stepped toward Miss Haverhill. Once known as the Tin Lizzie, the Model T was first produced in 1908 and ended production in 1927. If we move along here, we'll see some of the newer Ford and Mercury models now available. She motioned John and Mrs. Appel forward. Andy, where have you been? John, those agents are back. Mrs. Appel's dark eyes opened wide. My God, why? Excuse me, Miss Haverhill. Yes, Mr. Reese. I need to speak with Mr. Davenport or someone in charge of policing the fair. I don't understand, she said. Miss Appel is being followed by two impostors claiming to be government agents. 
They have already harassed her in Iowa. Well, I can verify that, said John. Well, I certainly will contact Mr. Davenport. Do you have a description of these men? An older man with a hook nose and a younger man with blonde hair, both dressed with suspenders. This is unprecedented. I will be on the telephone to Mr. Davenport immediately. We will be meeting him at the Kodak building in a short time. Excuse me. Of course. Her heels clicked across the floor and John grabbed his arm. Andy, why are they following Lucy? For what? It may not be Lucy. Andy shook his head. I think Professor Geiger. Geiger fled the Nazis and I think somebody is tailing Lucy because of her letters to Geiger. Oh, dear God! shouted Mrs. Appel, and she raised her hands to her mouth. Maybe we should just go home. No, Mavis, we're not going home. I'm so glad you're here with us, Andy, said John as they drifted back near the Model T. You may have already scared them off. I hope so, but I frankly don't think so. The time to worry about is when we are with Geiger. I think they're just gathering information. John nodded as Miss Haverhill's heels hit the floor again. She moved quickly, and her face was serious. Mr. Davenport is currently in a meeting, but he has alerted Lieutenant Lou McPhail of the New York City Police Department, who is in charge of policing the fair. Well, I think we're safe with Mr. Reese with us, said John. I can bring you to the Ford Cycle of Production, or we can proceed to the Kodak building. Well, I say we just stick to business as usual, said John. Mrs. Appel's disheartened look indicated she felt otherwise. Very well, please follow me. They were led into the front area. A huge sloping center display slowly rotated. On the display were the workings of the automobile industry from raw materials to the assembly line. Take careful note of the extensive operation, said Miss Haverhill as Andy looked out the windows at the stretch of grass back to the highway bridge. Twenty-seven raw materials are traced through their process stations to the finished product of a Ford car. And I thought you just turned the key and shifted, right, Andy? Right, John. He said in a more subdued voice. Let me bring you over to the actual processes used in manufacturing, including something that you will find appropriate to living on a farm. The use of soybeans is being highlighted, said Miss Haverhill. She pointed to what resembled a glass oven. Well, I'd like to grow soybeans for Ford, said John. If you will accompany me to the Ford Theater, we can take a break on your tour before we are transported to the Kodak Pavilion. It's air-conditioned, said Andy, looking at John, just in case. I think that's a good idea, said John. Lucy, you stay with Andy. Miss Haverhill raised her thin brows. Very well. Mr. and Mrs. Appel, you will come with me. Lucy slid over to Andy as Miss Harryhill opened the theater doors and brought the appels inside. Lucy whispered in his ear, Do you think they may hurt or injure Professor Geiger? No, I don't think so. They could have done that at any time. I think they're looking for information, and I don't know where Geiger is. I hope nothing has happened to him. They sat down on a bench outside the theater. I may have to try the Soviet pavilion. Look how complex it is to make a car, Andy. I never knew how Ford revolutionized the assembly line. I read it would have cost $17,000 to make a car without the assembling. This is an example, Lucy. Ford thought about the technology and he made it better. It benefited people because... Not Dinkin. To think. I understand. The other end of that thought is the television camera, he said. 
without thinking it could become an unmitigated disaster. She pressed her lips and turned toward the sloping center display. You mean anyone could broadcast? It's truly a matter of thinking things through. It sounds simple, but actually doing it is the difficult thing. For a few moments, they said nothing. Those men know you mean business, Andy. Dad needs to call Ford about that soybean converter. Looks like a liquor still they used during Prohibition. Knock Dankin. She smiled. Why knock Dankin? Whoever thought through the implications of taking away all that alcohol? She smiled. Oh, I see. Andy folded his arms. We need to get some food before we head up to the Kodak place. I'm surprised Miss Haverhill has overlooked that. Well, there are plenty of stands all over the fair, Kimosubi, she said, straightening his tie. Andy's brow creased. What's the matter? The three men who surrounded him when they entered the fair were now in front of the central sloping display. He took her hand and she stood. The monkey men moved in unison toward the theater doors. Going in that theater would leave them trapped. Instead, he led her over to the side ropes and onto a small ramp. Soon they were outside in the warmer garden court air. Below the ramps where the colored cars raced between the levels. They scurried along tables with spreading blue umbrellas. Over his shoulder, the three men had just entered the court. Lines of people were packed on staircases leading to the top of the ramps for rides in the new cars. Where are they? asked Lucy within the crowd noise. Let's just get up to the stairs. Andy gripped her hand and looped around a small fountain as music from the bandstand reverberated around the garden court. Escaping the three of them meant skirting the staircase crowds. The patrons complained as he brought Lucy along the line and up the stairs. At the top of the staircase, he saw three men attempting to cut through the line at the first landing. Ahead, they were ushered into a new orange Mercury car. One of the Ford people opened the door and they slid into the back seat. The car had a new smell. The door closed and Andy turned around. Out the rear window, the three men broke through and forced their way into a yellow car behind him. He rubbed his mouth and chin. She held on to him as the car smoothly moved through the opening that provided a sweeping view of the Trilon and Perisphere. The statue of Washington and the long mall pool was just below them, and people buzzed along the connected avenues. He turned again. The yellow car was just behind them. Lucy looked out the rear as the car closed in. When the car bumped against the orange car, the driver reacted. What the hell's wrong with him? The pug-nosed guy was now driving the rear car and was nearing them again. With a strong jolt, the yellow car smashed into the rear bumper. What's wrong with them? The yellow car slid outward and then forward. Repeatedly, the driver sideswiped the orange car, knocking Lucy and Andy against the door. What, is he crazy? The yellow car's white wall tires spun as the pug-nosed guy veered into the rear fender. The driver fought to control the orange mercury as the rear quarter fishtailed on the ramp high above the fair. Lucy tucked her head against Andy's chest. Folks, I'm going to speed up. Hold on. Concurrently, the yellow car moved almost parallel, then cut the wheels inward. The impact sent the orange car spinning and the driver bounced off the ramp rails. He jammed the brakes and they screeched to a stop. The yellow car rocked back and forth across the ramp and then rode up over the rail. The huge car became airborne and arced over the edge. 
It rotated in midair and landed upside down like a top on the grass in front of the building. There was no explosion as the car spun to a stop. Between the Trilon's apex and the spherical perisphere, a mass of granular dust, orange in the afternoon light, twisted into the breeze. The swarm of monkeys, like dissipating smoke, blinked out of existence. Lucy clung to the open window. Where are the agents, Andy? Andy shook his head. I don't know, but I'm sure they'll be back. Next week, we listen to the seventh and final episode of I Have Seen the Future. And I ain't giving nothing away. I can only tell you that what you think is going to happen is probably not right. Next week's episode is longer in order to accommodate the last two chapters. I'm Robert P. Fitton, being flown back to 1939, the Westinghouse Building, and Electro, the Motorman. Telephone switchboard. If I get a wrong number, I can always blame the operator. Thank you. And by the way, I see a lot of good numbers out in our audience today. Electro, behave yourself. Quiet, please. I'm doing the talking. I'm sorry. That's the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.